Good morning, class. For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the president. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be president. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of the Almost Presidents podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And this is our monthly podcast where we talk about former candidates for president in American politics who didn't quite make it to the White House, but created a lasting impact on the American collective consciousness. And also, if you're listening to this episode on the day it came out, happy election day. We hope to give you a nice little soundtrack here as you are on your way to vote on election morning or in the afternoon or in the evening or whenever you get around to voting, or if you've already voted, this will be a nice little celebratory episode. And Kevin, this actually times perfectly. I don't know how we did it because this, of course, is going to be the episode where we're going to see Bobby Kennedy run for Senate. Of course, not in a midterm race per se, because this is when LBJ was also running against um, Barry Goldwater. Barry Goldwater. Yes. I don't know why I blanked on that. I was running against Barry Goldwater. So it was a different type of election cycle, but Still, we do have some similarities that we can draw here uh, topic-wise as far as elections for Senate. So we'll see how things shake out, but make sure you get out there and vote if you haven't already done so. But other than that, um, Kevin, how are things going for you this month? How's your Halloween? How's your fall? I'm pretty good, aside from the fact that I caught a second bout of the annual, uh, I don't know, kids illness that that every, like for whatever reason, every kid gives off in the fall season and yeah you don't sound fantastic. hear it in my voice yeah so i was i was basically mute for the past like two days and uh yeah find it finally back to it but um that took me out for a couple of days that's good yeah it's a rough thing to have happen to you as a teacher to not be able to to speak because uh, yeah. a lot of what goes into it yeah for sure it's basically i mean you basically don't have an option you can't work sick in that context you know well, hopefully that'll be it for you. I mean, hopefully your your immune system is super strong now and you don't have to worry about the winter surge with COVID and everything else that we're all worried about. Yep. I hope not. I mean, I'm I'm vaxxed, I'm vaxxed pretty recently, so I should be okay on the COVID stuff. That's good. Never know. So how'd your Halloween go? Did you wind up dressing up as anything? I did. I, I got just a red and white shirt and I was just Waldo. Real nice. simple. Okay. And they yeah. found you? Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> well, good for them. Yeah, yeah. Just what, like you? What, did, what were you uh, for Halloween? Yeah, I mean, it's not as flashy as it sounds. It was just a T-shirt. I think people were expecting a lot more when I said that I was going to come in dressed as a Red Power Ranger and just had a Red Power Ranger T-shirt. But look, tradition is tradition. I've been doing this as long as I've been in education, so I think that's around. This might have been my fifth year as a Red Power Ranger. So. Maybe I'll have to go back and do the math, but it's definitely not something I'm going to give up. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen that famous meme of that guy, the teacher who wore the same outfit every day for picture day for like 40 years, like his whole teaching career. I'm kind of going for that at this oh point. That, guy, that guy's an idol of mine. So yeah, you, I mean, you got your work cut out for you, I guess. Yeah. If I could pull it off, I could pull it off. So we'll see. But yeah, other than that, I mean, I, I got to say, I've really been enjoying fall. I mean, a lot of the days the weather's been really nice i feel like fall just really passes me by most years but i've really been enjoying yeah. the leaves changing and i gotta say just because 
of what happened today. I, I got to make mention of it. Even if you're listening to this weeks or years down the road, the Jets took down the Bills today. One of the best teams in football took them down in their home stadium. So I am I am Amazing. ecstatic about that win. That was yeah. absolutely phenomenal. I just caught the fourth quarter of it, but man, was that a game to watch. Yeah. That yeah, Jet I, don't, I don't really watch football, but it seems like it's been a great season for New York sports in particular. It has been. I mean, there's been multiple weeks where all three New York sports teams win. I mean, even though I do count the Bills as being a uh, Canadian sports team because Buffalo is just so far out there. But yeah, And we all know that the Jets and the Giants are really New Jersey teams, but you know, I won't go down that road, I guess. Yeah. I mean, all I'll say about that is like, come on, give us one. The only professional sports team we have are the devils. I mean, I'm not going to count the red bulls. Like MLS yeah. soccer is, is, is BS. Yeah. They took the, they took the nets from us, which to be honest, they can have them. Yeah. With everything going on with Kyrie Irving and all the anti-Semitic and hateful garbage. And oh, is he on the Kanye on train team? now? I didn't know that. Yeah. So he tweeted this link to this very anti-Semitic movie. And so he was suspended for five games. And then there's now this whole long list of things that he needs to do in order to return to the league. So it's, it's, it's just some pretty ugly, shameful stuff. Yeah, I, I really haven't been, I, I love Kyrie Irving's game. I mean, he's really fun to watch, yeah, but incredible player. he's just been very shameful the way he's behaved himself the, the past few years, even though he has done good things for charitable organizations. It's, it's a shame to see what sure. he's become, you know, cause yeah, believing stupid things, is 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 one thing like with the flat earth and all that other dumb stuff but things that are just racist especially anti-semitic like that's yeah that's a road that you don't want to go down because there's a there's a long and bloody history there that you just yeah it, it, it cannot be tolerated whatsoever so either way folks um if you didn't check it out check out our halloween episode we came out with a surprise halloween episode about or well not about it was reading an, a, a story from the great hp lovecraft so check that one out if you haven't and we got a great episode for you all today so we hope that you enjoy it so today we're going to be diving into part eight of a multi-part series on bobby kennedy's historic 1968 run for the presidency if you haven't checked out the previous episodes in the series and you want to go back and start at the beginning of the story feel free to put this episode on pause and go check those out we'll be right here when you get back but as for all of you here for the next installment in our series, let's go ahead and get started. Last episode, we left off with Bobby Kennedy feeling very aimless and just shattered in the wake of his brother's assassination. The year is 1964. He is 38 years of age, and for a man of his relatively young age, it can already be said that he has led many lives. He served on McCarthy's Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, ferreting out supposed communists. Following this, he worked with Senator John McClellan on the Select Committee on Improper Activities in the Labor Management Field. This is where he made a name for himself, ruthlessly going after corrupt labor leaders like Jimmy Hoffa. Additionally, he brought the specter of organized crime into the light of day and exposed connections between organized crime and major labor unions like the Teamsters. He was appointed as Attorney General under his brother's presidential administration, and in that post, he fought for civil rights on college campuses and heavily involved himself in the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. His relationship with civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. could be described as complicated at best, but he still set a tone that the Kennedy administration was pro-civil rights. When humankind was on the brink, facing what could be described as his first threat of nuclear war, RFK was there, learning and growing as a statesman and man, 
under one of the most stressful situations imaginable. And by the end of it, the patently ruthless Attorney General had gone from Warhawk to Peace Dove. And then, of course, there were the campaigns that Bobby was there to tirelessly work on, then eventually run, whether they were JFK's multiple campaigns for Congress and then President. And we mentioned these campaigns last because in today's episode, we'll see a Bobby Kennedy who is involved in a campaign for public office, but this time not as its efficient, demanding manager, but as its candidate. You see, last episode, when we mentioned that dramatic scene of RFK quoting the Greeks as he resigned from his post as Attorney General on September 3rd, 1964, what we didn't mention was that on August 22nd, 1964, he had officially announced his candidacy for Senate in New York, surprisingly with the support of President Johnson. But before we dive right into that, let's, let's contextualize it a little bit. So the sense of disorientation Bobby felt in the wake of his brother's murder shouldn't be underplayed here. He never fully is going to recover from this, and it wasn't like he announced his candidacy before much deliberation and uncertainty. He was, however, a Kennedy, groomed for power and a life of public service. It wasn't really an option for Bobby to just disappear from public life and live on the family's wealth, or perhaps maybe even sink comfortably into a job as a professor teaching law in a quiet Massachusetts college town. As unfortunate as it was, Jack's death enabled Bobby to step out of his brother's shadow and begin to forge his own political identity that would be far different from Jack's. When we think of Jack, you know, we always think of someone who's appearing to be sleek and confident. This is a style that would never be achieved by Bobby. He would do this in his own way, and it wasn't always going to be easy for him. With that in mind, he was still tethered to the Kennedy name and all the baggage, prestige, and cold hard cash that came with it. And to a certain degree, in the early days of his striking out on his own, many of the crowds he drew domestically and from travels abroad were there because of his last name and its connection to the fallen president. But with all that aside, the Bobby Kennedy we're going to come to know over the remaining episodes of this series is the man who holds much of the myth that he has been enshrined in since his premature death. This will be the RFK who sheds the name Ruthless for champion of the poor and disenfranchised. This will be the RFK who has journalists abandoning all attempts at journalistic objectivity due to their love for him. But before we can get to all that, we first have to get RFK into the Senate. So how does that happen? And why New York? Listeners probably don't think of New York when they think of the Kennedys. Wouldn't Kennedy be a better fit to run for Senate in Massachusetts so he could campaign in Boston to the Irish community? And the answer to that is, of course, yes, except for the fact that Ted Kennedy took Jack's old seat as Massachusetts senator, a seat that he would keep warm for nearly 50 years. Although the Kennedys are pretty much synonymous with Massachusetts, it's not like RFK was a complete carpetbagger when he declared his candidacy for New York Senate. He had spent his boyhood growing up in Riverdale and Bronxville, suburbs of New York City, And yet, in many ways, he was the outsider, something his detractors were reminding him of time and time again during his campaign. Even today, to be a New Yorker is to be part of a tribe with a very specific set of norms and values. Recently, New York City mayoral candidate Andrew Yang learned this the hard way when, kind of famously at this point, he said that his favorite subway stop was the Times Square stop, which... New Yorkers largely considered to be just like a tourist jam nightmare. It's it's nobody's favorite. How dare he? 
Exactly. You might as well say New Jersey bagels are better at that point. Oof. And don't even go into the pizza. <laughs> so New Yorkers are people who ride the subways. They celebrate the, the wins of the Yankees, and they cry about the Knicks when they lose and the Mets when they lose. And they navigate all the streets and the avenues like the back of their hands. It's so important to be one of one of us. New Yorkers possess this rough possessed this rough exterior, but could stand together to put up a strong front against any threat from outside. Yeah, and before we move on from this idea of the New Yorker, just, just to go off of what you're saying and, and speak from personal experience as someone with just a passing familiarity with the city and the, the people that live there, New York City, in my mind, as as someone trying to look at it from with, with you know the outside, was best captured by Sam Raimi in those early Spider-Man movies, you know, the ones with Tobey Maguire, the best ones. Those movies showed New Yorkers who at times would literally like kick the shit out of Peter Parker, whether he was ripped off by a fight promoter or he was late delivering pizzas. And yet at the same time when he was Spider-Man, New York superhero, and he found himself in a pinch, it was New Yorkers who banded together to ward off the Green Goblin while he saved school children or barred Dr. Octopus's path when he tried to seize the fallen superhero on the subway. And specifically with that scene, you can actually thank stand-up comic Joey Diaz for that bit of heroics. That was him in that scene. Right. And Bobby Kennedy, of course, did not save school children from the Green Goblin. So he didn't really have that going for him. And on his return to New York, he got lost in his former neighborhood. The New York subways were an unfamiliar place to him. And perhaps most egregiously in the minds of New Yorkers, he had the nerve to ask for a fork. While he was eating pizza. Disgusting. Come. Due to this outsider carpetbagger status, as well as his well-documented, wealthy, and extravagant lifestyle, he just wasn't relatable to your average blue-collar New Yorker. In a speech delivered from the Gracie Mansion on August 25th, Bobby acknowledged some of the New Yorker's preconceptions about him and tried to defuse them, saying, quote, I cannot, in fairness, ask them to vote for me, even though my mother and father have had a home in New York since 1926, and I attended New York schools for six years before my father became ambassador to Great Britain, and I have once again established residence in this state. But I do not base my candidacy on these conditions. I base it on the belief that New York is not separate from the nation in the year 1964. I base it on the conviction that my experience and my record equip me to understand New York's problems and do something about them. I base it on the fact that the greatest state in the union must play a leading role in that effort. As far as party allegiances go, New York definitely leaned blue, as it does today, by holding on to a margin of half a million more registered voters than the Republicans had. But this numerical difference wasn't reflected in the men the state of New York sent to represent them in the Senate. Both of them were Republicans. The incumbent and Kennedy's opponent, Kenneth Keating, was popular having been re-elected seven times. Bobby, on the other hand, was still adjusting to his role as candidate. In the world of politics, Bobby was, of course, navigating familiar waters. But when it was his face in the newspapers and the TV ads and making self-promoting speeches as the candidate, it often seemed at times, especially in the early days of the campaign, that Bobby just didn't have a lot of the qualities that were befitting of a candidate running for the U.S. Senate. His speeches were largely uninspiring. He had yet to develop his own distinct voice and would just mimic old gestures that JFK would do during his speeches. 
And he still had to face his old enemies and atone for old sins, namely slander from his old McCarthy frenemy, Roy Cohn, and of course the Teamsters, and accusations of his father's anti-Semitism, which was extremely problematic for the Jewish community in New York. The campaign itself could hardly be said to be running with even near the same efficiency as JFK's 1960 campaign. Among other flaws, the candidate was often overbooked, and so the campaign began gaining a reputation for tardiness. All this isn't to say that RFK didn't draw crowds in the campaign trail, because he did. And they were massive, full of sometimes seemingly rabid young people who would swarm the car, grab at his clothes, try and rip off his cufflinks, all that good stuff. But Kennedy felt mixed emotions about these crowds. A part of him mistrusted them. He felt that they were just there due to his connection with the dead president. He could also be fearful of them at times. But on the other hand, he could also be thrilled by them. Once Bobby secured the Democratic nomination, which was delivered to him by some of those same New York party bosses who had helped out JFK, it was time to square off against Keating. When it came to the numbers, though, the votes, and their relationship to these impressive crowds that Bobby drew, he predicted that, quote, I'll draw huge crowds as I go to different parts of the state for the first time. All the attention will be on that, and it will last for about three weeks. I'll hit a low point around the 1st of October. The question will be whether I can turn it around and regain the momentum. When these internal polls came in, they confirmed Bobby's predictions. Keating was ahead. As the election drew near, Keating took a shot at Bobby below the belt. Basically, in this roundabout way, he accused him of being an anti-Semite, just like his father. And this had the undesired effect, if you're Keating, of lighting a fire under Bobby and giving him cause to just let loose on his opponent. He dug into Keating's voting record, even unapologetically misrepresenting and misconstruing certain aspects of it. He was able to, in his words, quote, regain the momentum. And when October came around, he was catching up to Keating in the polls. He actively made efforts to tie Keating to fellow Republican and presidential candidate Barry Goldwater, who was growing more and more unpopular. His delivery of speeches was improving. He appeared on television answering pressing questions put to him by students, and he answered them convincingly, which served to strengthen his overall image, not diminish it. And it was around this time that Keating challenged Kennedy to a debate. RFK, though, wouldn't debate him, seeing it only as a losing situation if he did. But regardless of whether he had RFK's consent or not for a debate, Keating would have his debate, even if it meant he had to debate an empty chair, which is exactly what he did. Knowing this would hurt their candidate, the Kennedy campaign was at odds about how to respond. RFK called CBS, the same network airing Keating's debate, and demanded a TV spot to respond to everything Keating said during his spot. When this didn't materialize, in a moment of classic political theater, Bobby went down to the station and when he found the doors to be locked, demanded to be let inside, to take on his opponent, man to man. This bold move on Bobby's part caused Keating's empty chair strategy to backfire, as people began to realize that while Keating was using his TV time to debate an empty chair, his opponent was right outside, willing and ready to take a seat and have it out. Or maybe not, I can't say for certain, but maybe Bobby took advantage of a perceived opening. Knowing he'd likely lose an actual debate with Keating, he may have also known that he could make it look like he wanted to debate without actually having to debate by just showing up and knowing that the press would follow. So what wound up happening was Keating, accompanied by his aides, fleeing out the back door as the temperature rose outside in the front. When election day finally arrived, 
the incumbent President LBJ took the state of New York in commanding fashion. Before the campaign was over, LBJ campaigned with RFK. RFK also campaigned with Hubert Humphrey, LBJ's running mate and Bobby's future rival for the Democratic nomination in the 1968 presidential race. And there's this cringeworthy image recounted by a member of Kennedy's campaign of LBJ, who was famously known to be physical with people, putting his arm around RFK and saying in his Texas accent that I'll see if I can impersonate here, this is my boy. I want you to elect my boy. However painful this moment was for Bobby, the animosity between the two men still at a full boil, RFK too came out on top in New York, defeating Keating by 719,693 votes. Worth noting, he secured the majority of the Jewish vote and demolished Keating in getting the Black and Puerto Rican vote. Larry Ty points out, interestingly, that Bobby's majority in the New York Senate race hadn't been seen since 1934. While the ethnic and racial groups that turned out for Bobby will be important to return to in 1968, it also didn't hurt that, let's face it, Bobby's campaign was never concerned about money, and never would be. And now, with hardly any time passed between then and JFK's assassination, a third Kennedy was headed to Congress. So keeping in mind the direction that we're headed here, the 1968 presidential race, of course, we need to understand a bit about the Lyndon Johnson White House and the things that led to this successful and well-loved president to become the embittered, much-reviled, expected incumbent that would surprisingly withdraw from the race in 1968 and shake up that election in a way that nobody expected. So we're going to dive into LBJ a bit. So going back in time a bit, five days after JFK was assassinated, LBJ stood before an anxious and traumatized America as he addressed Congress on Capitol Hill. I'm, and I'm quoting from him here. All I have, I would gladly have given not to be standing here today. The greatest leader of our time has been struck down by the foulest deed of our time. Today, John Fitzgerald Kennedy lives on in the immortal words and works that he left behind. First, no memorial oration or eulogy could more eloquently honor President Kennedy's memory than the earliest possible passage of the Civil Rights Bill for which he fought so long. We have talked long enough in this country about equal rights. We have talked for a hundred years or more. It is time now to write the next chapter and to write it in the books of law, unquote. Johnson quoted from Kennedy's inauguration speech, in which Kennedy said, quote, let us begin. And in this speech to Congress, Johnson said, let us continue. He called for Congress to continue fighting for the things that Kennedy had fought for in his lifetime. Education for all of our children, jobs for all who seek them, care for our elderly, and of course, equal rights for all Americans, whatever their race or color. LBJ's speech was met with an, un an uproarious applause. And while Johnson was certainly not known for his honesty, much of what he said in that speech was true. He would pursue many of Kennedy's ambitions as president, and he would do so with a staggering degree of success. I really don't think it's unfair to say that LBJ was one of the most transformative presidents of the modern era. Now, it's hard to talk about LBJ's presidency without spending a bit of time talking about the man himself. LBJ was interesting, to say the least. For one, 
LBJ was famously self-obsessed. There's a lot of stories about this, but my personal favorite, listeners probably know, presidents often have like these busts around of like people they respect. For example, Joe Biden has one of yours truly, Bobby Kennedy, in his office right now. And LBJ had plastic busts made of himself, and he placed them around the White House. And even worse, when he met the Pope, these two powerful men exchanged gifts. And LBJ got a 14th century painting, and you guessed it, the Pope got a plastic bust of LBJ. Otherwise, LBJ was a vulgar and cruel man. When looking at LBJ's conduct in the White House, it's hard to come up with any other words than just that he was a malicious bully. In one famous example, a reporter asked LBJ why the U.S. was in Vietnam, and in response, he pulled out his dick and he waved it around and said, this is why. I think that says it all. But LBJ's bullying tactics served a specific purpose. It wasn't just random cruelty. He wanted loyalty, maybe even subservience from the people around him. Press Secretary George Reedy said, quote, His lapses from civilized conduct were deliberate and usually intended to subordinate someone else to do his will. He did disgusting things because he realized that other people had to pretend that they did not mind. Yeah, and maybe just to jump in real quick, one of those things really oddly was that he would have people writing down things that he was saying as he was on the crapper. And there are multiple people that will report that. Like, he will literally just be taking a shit with the door open and just be talking and expect somebody to be there taking notes or listening. Well, some people say that's when you do your best thinking, but LBJ would agree with that. Um, enemies or just detractors of LBJ received what became rather ominously known as the treatment in which LBJ would invade people's personal space, towering over them and sticking his face millimeters away from his opponents while he bargained with or intimidated them into doing his will. All of these qualities would have made him nothing more than a schoolyard bully if it weren't for the fact that LBJ was obsessively ambitious. Once he set his mind to a goal, he would work himself and everyone around him near to or far past the point of exhaustion until he achieved that goal. And for example, when he ran for the house in 1937, he lost 42 pounds in just 40 days from how hard he was working. He was obsessively meticulous. He tried as best he could to learn everything about his colleagues so that he could flatter, bargain with, or threaten the right person at exactly the right time. Yeah, and to go back to that 1937 campaign for the House, I believe he accepted his seat in the, in a hospital bed. Like that, would, that was just how hard he worked himself, which is to say nothing about the people around him. But perhaps the best description of LBJ's presidency as a whole comes from something that he told his aide in 1964. He said, quote, I'm sick of all the people who talk about the things we can't do. Hell, we're the richest country in the world, the most powerful. We can do it all. And OBJ more or less did it all as president, or at least tried to. First, LBJ passed a sizable tax cut, something that JFK had been fighting for before his death. This might come as a surprise to modern Americans who see the Democrats as the party of social spending, whereas the Republicans are the party of tax cuts, but many liberal economists, such as the economic advisor Walter Heller, believe that these tax cuts would help to spurn the economy. 
Receiving votes from 53 Democrats and 21 Republicans, the bill that was halted in Congress during Kennedy's lifetime passed easily under LBJ. Next, LBJ declared war on poverty. This was also a priority that he inherited from Kennedy. The political scientist Michael Harrington published an influential book called The Other America, which made poverty a headlining issue in America, and LBJ realized it was a good time to take advantage of the popular mood and to tackle the problem. The war on poverty culminated in the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964, which attempted to provide a leg up to people from low-income backgrounds through small business loans, job training, and grants for students from low-income backgrounds. But the true test of LBJ's skill as a politician came with the civil rights bill that Kennedy introduced in the summer of 1963. LBJ reintroduced the bill to the House in February, where it passed with flying colors, only to face a record-breaking three-month filibuster in the Senate. In characteristic style, LBJ became obsessed with the passage of the bill. He kept long tally sheets of every senator's expected vote on the bill, organizing them all into columns of yes, no, and undecided, and he poured over all of these lists with just an obsession. Finally, an agreement was reached with the Republican minority leader Everett Dirksen, who, according to Johnson's own words, he had courted more persistently than his own wife. Sorry, Lady Bird. The agreement led to a cloture vote or vote that ended a filibuster and a subsequent passage of the bill. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was not magic. It didn't even pretend to address matters of great importance such as voting rights and the abysmal economic conditions of most black Americans. And it was perhaps not even as great a bill as Johnson would pretend it was but it is still arguably one of the most significant pieces of legislation in modern history, maybe ever. The bill banned discrimination in privately run accommodations for the public, such as movie theaters, restaurants, gas stations, and hotels. It also empowered the Attorney General to eliminate racial segregation in public schools, hospitals, playgrounds, libraries, museums, as well as other public places. It also allowed the government to deny federal assistance to institutions that segregated based on race. Everett Dirksen, the Republican minority leader who assisted in the passage of the bill, later reflected on why it passed and summarized his view with a Victor Hugo quote, quote, no army can withstand the strength of an idea whose time has come. It would take time for the impenetrable walls of Jim Crow, however, to fall. Indeed, some have argued quite forcefully that remnants of these walls still exist in the modern day, but the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was certainly the first blow to fall against those walls. LBJ's year or so in the White House was likely good enough to seal his victory in the upcoming 1964 election. His Let Us Continue speech was very popular and had warmed voters to the idea of this rough-around-the-edges Texan taking the place of the clean, young, and inspiring Kennedy. Voters also liked that he was experienced and knowledgeable about the legislative branch, And his staggering legislative success in just a few short months seemed to affirm that having a man with experience in charge was essential to getting things done in Washington. That said, the Republicans didn't help themselves much in this election. Senator Barry Goldwater narrowly beat the much more moderate Nelson Rockefeller. And Goldwater was a right-wing ideologue who probably would have been better suited for office if he had run in the Reagan 80s or maybe even now when opposition to big government was kind of the norm. But in the 60s, 
Opposition to big government meant opposing Johnson's civil rights bill and other very popular liberal policies. Goldwater denounced the war on poverty in the poor and destitute Appalachia region of the South, which is an unpopular thing to do for obvious reasons. He also called for the sale of FDR's New Deal-era Tennessee Valley Authority to private interests, and this branch is, of course, what provided electricity to rural parts of the South that previously had none. And in speeches to the elderly, he declared that he wanted to scrap Social Security. So he, he just seems kind of reckless with what he's with matching what he's saying to who he's saying it to. Yeah, I mean, you could say he was committed to his ideas, right? And he was willing to be unpopular for it. There's certainly something respectable in that, but it's not going to win you elections. Yeah, I mean, we'll learn a lot more when we cover him for sure. But yeah. So naturally, the election was a landslide. Johnson picked up 43.1 million votes to Goldwater's 27.2 million, giving Johnson an electoral vote total of 486 and Goldwater a total of 52. And in the House, the Democrats won a margin of 295 seats to 140, gains of 37 seats. And in the Senate, a margin of 68 seats to 32, which was a gain of one seat. But close observers of these elections noticed that something was happening to the Democratic coalition. Among the few states that Goldwater had won were Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina, all states that Kennedy had won in 1960. And even in Eisenhower's landslide victories in 1952 and 1956, Stevenson had won all of these states. Stevenson, of course, was his opponent, save Louisiana in 56, of course. The Democrats were losing the South, and they would continue to lose the South, a trend that would deeply damage the party in future elections. And Southern flight from the party was only one of the many threats to the Democratic Party that were starting to bubble up. One threat that was just ongoing for them was taking place in Vietnam, which we will talk about in much more detail in episode 10 of this series. And the other was at home in the U.S., and it was occurring in places like the Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhoods in New York City. On July 16, 1964, just two weeks after Johnson's Civil Rights Act was signed into law, an off-duty police officer named Thomas Gilligan shot a black ninth grader named James Powell in front of several of his friends and dozens of witnesses. In response to the shooting, six consecutive nights of rioting ensued in these neighborhoods. The rioting led to over 100 injuries, nearly 500 arrests, a million dollars in property damage, and one dead protester. Similar riots occurred throughout that summer in Rochester, New York, Elizabeth, Patterson, and Jersey City, New Jersey, as well as Philadelphia, PA. These riots were a sign that the dissatisfaction of Black Americans was not halted nor even hindered by the passage of a Civil Rights Act. Black Americans still had a sense that they were second-class citizens, and in the ever more tumultuous days in the mid-60s, they were growing tired of this relegated status. We've already talked about riots in this series, and we'll certainly have more to say about them since there are more riots to come, but it's important to note a couple of things about riots since they are such a significant phenomena to the politics of the election of 1968. The riots that swept the country after 1964 gave whites a growing sense that their country was declining into anarchy under the leadership of the Democrats, who many felt were often permissive towards these violent and often terrifying events. Riots were one among many factors that helped to drive the South away from the Democratic Party, since race riots seemed to play into this narrative spun by prominent segregationist politicians. 
Interestingly enough, despite public perception, the riots of the mid to late 60s were actually less chaotic than any of their predecessors. In his sweeping study of American riots, the historian, and I hope I get his name right here, Paul Gillier, notes that for well over 100 years following the American Revolution, riots became increasingly violent. Oftentimes, their explicit goal was the execution of racial, ethnic, and religious minorities. For example, the Mormon leader Joseph Smith was killed in a riot. Authorities often had a hard time containing such riots. One extreme example is the famous insurrection and coup d'etat in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, when thousands of white men overthrew a legitimately elected biracial government and killed 60 to 300 black people. By contrast, rioting in the late 60s and onward was incredibly tame. The race riots of the late 60s were characterized by property destruction, arson, and looting, which harmed local businesses and the local communities where these riots took place. But rioters rarely killed anyone. The vast majority of deaths in these riots were caused by the military and police. Moreover, the federal, state, and local governments' control over these situations was rarely ever in question. Governments hesitated to involve themselves, for fear that it would make them look bad to the public if police tear-gassed a bunch of protesters. But they almost always could bring these situations under control if they needed to. Now, of course, none of this is to justify property destruction, arson, or looting, which all are very harmful things, but it's important to note that the public perception just differs a bit from the reality when it comes to rioting in the late 60s. It's also worth noting here that the racial makeup of the rioters in the 60s probably influenced public perception a bit. Unfortunately, a lynching in 1900 was not viewed by the largely racist public as a riot or as anarchy or as chaos. It was just viewed as normal. While a far less damaging riot in Harlem in the late 60s was viewed as the end of Western civilization by white moderates. And unfortunately, public perception is all that matters in politics, and the public perceived the riots as an unprecedented source of chaos that was plunging their country into anarchy. This dynamic would drive a lot of white moderates away from the Democratic Party in the coming years and towards the likes of Richard Nixon or the populist third-party candidate George Wallace, who grew increasingly popular between the elections of 1964 and 1968, when he would truly become a force to be reckoned with. But at the time when Johnson was re-elected in 1964, none of these forces represented a threat to the Democratic Party, which rode into the late 60s with incredible momentum. On the next episode of the podcast, we'll be going back to Bedford-Stuyvesant and talking about how one Democrat in particular, I think you know who, fits into, and at times even pushes against, LBJ's America. All this and more on the next episode of the Almost President podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy the show. Okay, and if you're still listening to us, you know what time it is. It's time for our book recommendations of the month. So, Kevin, what are you reading this this fine month of November? So, I just finished up Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver. Eldridge Cleaver, for people who may not know, was, a le- I believe, a leader of the Black Panthers. And he went on to uh, run for president, actually, the same year that Bobby Kennedy did. And, uh, obviously, campaign didn't really go very far, but... But he was a pretty big figure in like the sort of black radical movement of the 60s. And it's just a memoir of his. And I, I don't know, I found it super 
compelling and interesting. He's one of those guys who had a very dark past before he kind of got into a lot of the movements that he was into. Um, he talks extensively about like a lot of the violent acts he commits in the beginning of the book. And the majority of the book takes place in prison. So um, he goes through a lot of a variety of like significant events, like the shooting of Malcolm X. Um, there's also love letters in here between him and his lawyer, who I, I don't know if he winds up like marrying or anything. And then, you know, there's also just like a bunch of essays that like spell out all his thoughts on things in one of the re- like what I thought was one of the better essays. He explains how he thinks that uh, the twist by Chubby Checker, that song did more to end segregation than Brown v. Board of Ed, which I thought was like a pretty interesting perspective there. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It was just a super interesting perspective. I mean, I guess for people who are interested in a lot of the stuff we're talking about in this season, uh, this would probably be a great book to pick up. It's not someone we obviously talked much about at all, uh, but you know, definitely an interesting and unique perspective on uh, the events that we've kind of talked about. You know, it's funny, we were talking about this book off the mics before we were recording this just now, and you didn't tell me the title of the book. Um, and, and funnily enough, as I was driving back from Philly yesterday, it was our sister's birthday, so we drove down. Um, Bill Burr was talking about this book on his podcast, The Monday Morning Podcast. Really? Soul on Ice. Yeah. He said he actually had to put it down when the author admitted that he was just going to become a violent man and, and give in to his violent urges. He, Bill Burr, oh, I guess. He, he got about he, 10 pages in then. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cause Bill Burr yeah. was just like, all right, I'm putting this down that if, if that's, if that's who you're going to be and, and you're, you're going to be unapologetically just admitting that then I'm out. So, so, so the thing is like, he's writing from his perspective at the time. And he's basically saying like, I basically, when he, like when he was a young man, he's like, when I was a young man, I basically, feel the sense that I should act violence on people and he does but uh that that's like not his that's not the way he does views things now necessarily um I don't know well obviously not now but when he's writing like he's not of the mind that he should be committing violence he's just writing the way that he saw things as like a young man um and that's why he's in jail so I don't think that that is actually an endorsement of violence I think it was just him writing from his perspective at the time. Right. And Bill Burr's got an agenda of his own to make each episode funny as, as a comedian too. So yeah. he definitely did some good riffing on that. But from your perspective, hearing it now, I'm definitely more interested in reading this book and perhaps maybe we'll cover him as a season of our podcast at a later date. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he ran for president, so he's a, he's a potential uh, future topic of the show. That automatically puts him on our radar at the very least. Yep. So what have you been reading? Yeah, so earlier in the year, or I I guess for us, the way that we view the beginning of the year, which is September, the beginning of the school year, Queen Elizabeth died. And that really overshadowed the death of someone who I would argue is just as important, if not more important, and that's Mikhail Gorbachev. And so when I found out that he died, I realized that, especially with everything going on in Russia right now, I got to learn about this guy because I know that he's the bald Russian dude with the red birthmark on his head. I saw him in an episode of The Simpsons. There was a joke that he was moving in next door to the Simpson family. And with everything that Putin is doing and everything, or the limited knowledge that I had about Gorbachev, it just seemed that a lot of what Putin is doing is trying to undo what Gorbachev accomplished when he was 
doing all these great reforms for the Soviet Union. So I just thought, I need to learn about this guy. So I picked up Gorbachev, His Life and Times by William Taubman. And I've been listening to that. And I got to say, I think it's around, if I recall, 30 hours long. I'm listening to it on my commute. And I'm about at the point where I have 20 hours left. And he is already the leader in the Soviet Union. So I'm pumped because a lot of these biographies of leaders, you spend most of it just building up to when they actually become the leader. And then there's that blip of when they're a leader and then it's over. So having 20 hours left of just really going into depth about all he accomplished for the Soviet Union and then for Russia, I'm really looking forward to. So that's definitely going to be a great read. I also picked up, and I might talk about this on a future pod, the recent biography that came out on Putin. So those are kind of going to be interesting to read side by side. Yeah, I I guess it's interesting to put those two leaders side by side because the way I've understood it, and I'm obviously no expert on Russia, but Putin has very much viewed himself as almost like the anti-Gorbachev. Like a lot of the Russian people feel that Gorbachev was like a weak and like kind of humiliating leader. And Putin has sort of propped himself up, as I understand it, as like he's going to sort of put together the pre-Gorbachev like Russia. Um, I, I mean, you could maybe you disagree with that, having read about like, you know, more about Gorbachev certainly than I have. But no, I mean, that's my understanding of it, too. And we'll see what comes out of it. I still have a little ways to go. I mean, I'm just learning about the early days of how he's approaching things like foreign policy and domestic affairs and all things like that. But definitely going to be an interesting read in a lot of ways. So I'm looking forward to it. And I've always wanted to crack Russia open ever since I was a freshman in college. This is back in 2013. And I took this critical reading and writing class at this private Catholic college. And I guess the professor was just allowed to go in whatever direction she wanted, as long as it was having to do with critical reading and writing, which was just a standard class you had to take as a freshman. So she made it about underground Soviet texts. And it just fascinated me. And I still to this day regret selling back the textbook that she had us buy, which I think was the Solzhenitsyn reader, although it might have been something that had a lot of other Russian authors in it. But either way, if it was a Solzhenitsyn reader alone, that's just something that's definitely not worth selling back for pocket change compared to what you paid for it and just for its literary value. So maybe that'll be my reading goal for next year. But I think I'm already definitely getting into some Russian stuff. So yeah, that's what I'm reading this month. And finally, as Kevin Durant once said in the Like Mike wannabe basketball movie Thunderstruck, hard work beats talent when talent fails to work hard. What he meant by this was some people got it while some people need to work hard at it. Some people will be president of the United States. Some people won't. No matter what, those people, that person who will never be president of the United States is you. All right, folks, and we will see you next month. Make sure that you vote and Kevin, feel better. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com. 
which you can also find in the description.